Welcome to Human Nature with me, Rodney Edwards. It's a podcast with a difference. Interviews with well-known people from across the island of Ireland. Different questions, different answers, different perspectives. We talk struggle and success, love and loss, emotion and feelings. In this episode, Claire Byrne, a daughter, a mother, a sister, a wife and one of Ireland's best-known journalists. This interview was recorded a few weeks ago via Zoom as Ireland began to edge its way slowly out of lockdown. This is Claire's story. I hope when I took them in at night that they're happy, that I have been the best parent that I can be and that if I haven't, I'll be better tomorrow. Terrified, absolutely terrified. I thought I had killed both my parents, in truth. Someone told me one time, never say you don't want to do the Late Late Show, that's a bad career move. But if it came my way, I'm not gonna say no, because I'm not an idiot. I would never go after our television program, I would never look at the CB Live Twitter handle or hashtag. I just wouldn't do it because it would be madness. I wouldn't sleep. It affects me, you know, it affects me. Like it's bullshit, <laughs> it's bullshit. It really annoys me that if men still think that they, they can get away with that stuff. How are you? How are you? I'm fine, I'm fine. Good, can you see me? Uh, I can see you, yeah. I've not put in video out, I'm just recording the audio. Oh, fine, okay, that's great. How are you? I'm good, I'm good. I'm a small bit frazzled, but I'm fine. Yes, I'm frazzled too. It's very humid tonight. Yeah, we. I took my children to the beach today and we all got sunburned because we stayed there for about six hours. Like, just stupid. And then now they're all so tired going to bed that... So is this the second one you've done or have you done a few more? No, um, I've... Well, I did... Mary, the Mary Lou one went out last weekend hmm. and this weekend's Eamon Holmes from... Oh, yeah. He's Belfast born. And then next week, I'm doing Joe Duffy. And then yourself. You can ignore this. This this is a pillow on this side and a cushion on this side. And I'm trying my best. Yeah, I'm trying my best to drown out that. There's a bit of an echo if I move back. But and how's my sound? You, how's you're, my sound there? Because I can use headphones, I think. No, you're, you, really, you? you're really good. I'm only wearing the headphones because I've got this recording gear, which, you know, I'm a complete amateur at all of this. But I hope... Uh, I hope it'll sound okay. But I really appreciate you doing this. Really Not at all. You're more than welcome. I'm delighted to do it because I've been following your work, um, obviously, the historical child abuse stuff. And then I thought the COVID pieces that you did were excellent. We were actually trying to chase some of the people that you had come up with. Um, the funeral of Tom, was it? Tom, Tom Best. Yeah, yeah, I remember I remember watching you um, talking about it that night. It was, <laughs> it yeah. was, it was such a... For, for everybody north and south, it was such a heavy time, wasn't it? Such a worrying time and yeah. a very intense time as well. I think that was the first moment, though. That funeral was the first thing that really brought it home to people. Yeah. It was stark, really stark. And are you feeling better after all that you've been through? Yeah. I mean, we took us a while, you know, it took us a long while to get over it. It's a funny old thing, you know, you think you're fine and then you have all sorts of residual stuff and you try and convince yourself that that's what was there all the time. But it wasn't, you know respiratory stuff or fatigue and just takes it takes like a long time to get over it and it hits everybody differently doesn't it yeah I think so and then you know how medics are if they say oh you know if you're not dead you're grand or you'll be over it in two weeks and you're out of their lives but I think the residual symptoms keep 
on for for quite some time. Yeah, I think that's a fairly common experience actually because I've been nosing around Facebook groups, you know, American ones, and it seems to be a lot of people. Although they're hilarious, like anyone else have vertigo? I've got vertigo now. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I had actually I had a friend text me today, and he works in a hospital, and he was talking to one of his colleagues today, and he now is of the opinion that he had COVID-19 back in October and he works oh. in London. So that's slightly concerning, isn't it? I know a lot of people actually who were really sick October, November, December time. That's right. I know a few people who were sick in December, but the antibody test that I had the other day, last Monday, my antibodies were low. So I don't know if you had it in October, whether you'd even have them. Depends how sick you were, I suppose. Yeah. No. Yeah. Well, Claire Byrne, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Not at all. Delighted to. I really appreciate it. I have been an admirer of your work for many years. Great. Across radio, TV, and the, the, the whole lot. And, yeah, it's been uh, a long time now. It must be. It must be a journalist thing, is it? Where I was reading up on how some really lovely stories about you, about when you were getting really inspired to get into journalism and you were really young and you're reading newspapers like I was you're pretending that you're on the news like I used to do is it something that just that just a would-be journalist always does do you think yeah I, th- I think well for me it was anyway and I you know I always say I had no background in this it wasn't something that was handed down to me I'm not from a family of writers or journalists or broadcasters far from it but I always wanted to do it. It was just a thing that was there from the get-go. And, you know, when I was growing up, people would say, what do you want to be? Oh, I want to be a reporter or a journalist. I'm not even sure I knew what it was at, at times. Um, but there was nothing else in my head, apart from maybe wanting to be Enid Blyton, you know, to write books in the way she did. Um, but that never happened. So the journalism thing did. But yeah, I just couldn't see any other job that I wanted to do. And I tried other stuff, you know, through college and even after college. I just, nothing worked for me apart from this job. And this is not like a job. This is just, it's it's great fun. I have a great passion for it. So it doesn't feel like work. I actually find, uh, I don't know if you agree or not, but it, it is it is a real honour, isn't it? And, I, I, you know, to, to, to be able to, to meet people and and to be given that access to people and and you really you know this podcast is called human nature but you really do learn a lot about humanity don't you when you meet the kind of people that you know we get to meet yeah I mean there's a weight of responsibility with it as well I mean I'm thinking because fresh in my mind is the family of Sonia Lee and Sonia herself who came in to us last Monday night and she was the victim of a a horrible assault. She was left brain damaged, her ex-partner stamped in her head, she was pregnant at the time. And just the weight of that responsibility for those women to come in and say, yes, I will talk to you, I trust you and I trust your team. I'm okay with the cameras being here. I'm okay with being on television. And that means that, well, I always say to people, I have to take all the pressure in that situation because they they have enough on their plate. So there's a real privilege and honour in that, but there's a huge weight of responsibility that I don't think you ever really get used to. And nor should you actually. You should always be in awe of that and have great respect for that privilege and honour that people, you know, trust you that much. Of course. But you're, you're also live on television. Is that an extra dimension of, of craziness and pressure? Mm-hmm. Maybe so, but I'm used to it, you know, I'm used to it. I've I've been doing television since 1999, having sworn that I would never do television when I was a radio reporter. Ooh, those TV people, what do they know? And then I end up doing it. And actually, I've been lucky enough that I've been able to do both, keep the radio on and do the TV as well. So I'm kind of I'm kind of used to it. Well, before we go on, a very important question. Yeah. Um, 
your shed? Is that really your shed? This is the infamous shed. There's a bit more. You probably see there's some pictures here because my husband has been working here since I broadcast from here. He then took this over. I actually can't see you, by the way. Well, can you not? No. Well, I thought you could. No. Well, why not? No, I don't. I don't know. Well, I think that that's bizarre. There's no point in me looking at you and you don't. Look oh, at there, me. there I can go. see you now. No. Yeah, that's different. There, I, had, I had the thing off. That's why. Oh, so you're, you're actually in your shed. I'm in, I'm in the shed. Yeah. Oh wow. So, this is, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like, it's a cabin. There's stuff, storage stuff over there, but it's like a little cabin. He used it, my husband used it as his office now because he hasn't been in his office. He hasn't been at work since, I don't know, March 7th, something like that. So this became the broadcasting hub and it became his office then. And I have the equipment. I don't know if you can see. Can you see uh mic stand there where I'm pointing? Yes, yes. Around? Yes, that's uh, RT broadcast equipment. So I can do the news at one from here if I so choose. But actually, I have been going in because with three small children, it's just like you can't. So I just go in. I've been going in right through the COVID stuff. So I mean, it's such an Irish <laughs> thing to say, but I am in awe of your shed. You couldn't swing a cat in my shed. You know, if I was expected to do this in my shed now, I would uh, I would find it very difficult. That's okay. Well, it's shed it's shed come office now at this stage. It's sort of been transformed. Like he's coming up here with his lunch in the mornings and he has a little kettle up here. So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> thing. Fantastic. Well, you, of course, tested positive for COVID-19 earlier this year. And yeah. how are you now? And are you still suffering? No, I'm fine. Actually, the last two weeks, it's three months since I had it, um, which I find it hard to believe. Actually, I find it hard to believe that I had it in the first place because the first 10 days I had symptoms. And at that stage, if you have a cough, you weren't allowed to be in work. So all I wanted was for somebody to tell me that I did not have COVID-19 so I could get back into work. So then I get the call to say, oh, your test was positive. And I was in complete shock. But actually, in retrospect, I was quite sick. And then the symptoms kind of wouldn't go away. Um, so I, you have this awful fatigue and you have sort of weak respiratory issues going on. And like I still have these mad sneezes back to back, 10 sneezes in the morning or in the afternoon, the evening. And I'm telling myself, oh, you've just developed hay fever. But I think that maybe isn't true. I'm not entirely sure. But definitely there, there are residual things happening, like, you know, taking Sudafed in the morning. That's not normal, but I'm doing that sometimes. And my husband, Jerry, tested negative, but he he had symptoms around that time when the testing system got log jammed. So he was taken off the list and put back on the list. So he had to wait quite a while for a test. So we're assuming he was positive, even though his test was negative. And he's had quite a few issues as well, probably more so than I've had with chest pain and, and burning lungs and all of that. Like he hasn't gone back running, for example. So... And you know what? It's worrying because nobody knows. Nobody knows what the long tail impact is of COVID-19 because it's so new. And that's the so concern, you're left there wondering, what did that thing do to my lungs? Or what happens if I get a flu next winter? And, you know, but anyway, you could live your life worrying about yourself. I don't generally, but you do sort of think about it occasionally and wonder why. Why did I get it, first of all? And what was wrong with my immune system? And second of all, will there be any long term issues? Hopefully there won't be. But look, I'm touch, I'm touch with it. I'm grand, grand, like in the main, I'm fine. And you realised during that time that maybe you were rushing around too much, that life was too fast. Is that right? No, I don't know. Like, I still can't figure out why I got it. The only thing I would say and the only thing that comes to mind is that every Monday night, 
we have an audience of 100 people who I didn't know, you know, in the studio. And then afterwards, we'd probably have photographs together. And, you know, so you just don't know. It could have come from that. Maybe my immune system was low. Like since then, I've been trying to do a bit more exercise and take a bit better care of myself. Um, so maybe it was a bit of, I, like, who knows? I don't know. But I'm still a bit shocked that I got it. You know, I, I take my mind back to that moment where I got the phone call to say I had the positive test. Uh, you could have knocked me over. I just was really surprised about it. But it is what it is. And it happened. And actually, it was good to be able to say, because it was a funny old stigma about it. So it was good to be able to sit there on the telly and go, I'm in, I'm in the COVID gang, you know. I know, I know. Because I remember, you know, you're doing such powerful pieces about COVID cases right around Ireland. And then suddenly it emerged that you actually had it yourself. Yes. So yeah. did you did you worry about your you know, your mortality during that period? Did you did you ever think of that? Uh, not really. There were three nights where I thought, if this gets any worse, I'm going to have to maybe make a phone call here. You know, the breathing was starting to get really shallow late at night. But it never occurred to me, oh, you know, I, I'm, I'm in very serious trouble here. What worried me more than anything was I had had my first symptom on a Monday and on the previous Thursday, I had been to see my parents. So I was hugely concerned that I had infected them. That was my biggest fear. That was, I was terrified about that. I felt huge guilt about that. Um, and it was the first thing that came to mind, you know, have I put them at risk? Um, that was the big worry. Nothing else, really. My children were fine. Uh, Jerry wasn't well, but we, we knew we weren't sick enough to, to warrant a big, you know, concern or, or to start worrying about it. But the fear around my parents was was real and terrifying for me. And your parents are Tom and Breda and you grew up on a farm in Leash. So what kind of relationship did you have with your parents growing up? Great, great. Um, they kind of had a hobby horse for, farm now. You know, it was very small and, and like my father did other things. But my relationship with them has always been great and still is great. Um, I'm lucky enough in that they're quite close to me. Leash is only a quick hop down the road from where I am and I go down to see them regularly. It's been tough over the lockdown though, really tough. So we've been able to make excuses to go down to sort of take them shopping and different things, but you have to be careful about, you know, adhering to the restrictions, but yeah, great, great relationship with them. Always have done. Um, and even more special now, I suppose that I have my own children and they have the time to spend with them. Whereas with us, there were six of us. So there probably wasn't as much time as, as there is now to, to spend on children. And you have three children, isn't that right? I have three, yeah. I have Patrick, Jane and Emma. Um, Patrick's nearly seven. Uh, Jane is nearly six and Emma's nearly three. And they're in bed now, are they? Just about, yeah, just about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was really tough because um, we were at the beach today and everybody was frazzled and, um, yeah, a bit high. And also I found that since since school stopped and play school stopped that bedtime's getting a bit later and everyone's getting up a bit later and you know the routine is gone a little bit um but yeah they should be asleep any minute now and did you learn any parenting sort of traits from your parents then that you've you've been able to implement with your own children oh listen I just hear my mother all of the time and it's normally when I'm giving out that I go oh my god you know what's what my mother would have said to me <laughs> there's children hungry in parts of the world there's children with no food yeah <laughs> you know, all of those things you catch yourself saying so I mean I suppose one of the things I took my, my mother was at home when we were growing up and there was always a hot dinner on the table so myself and all my sisters have this I've got four sisters 
we all have that tyranny where even though we go out to work, we still expect it of ourselves to have like a home cooked meal for everybody at the end of every day. And there is a tyranny in that. And I blame my mother for that because she did that for us, you know, like even now you go down to help them out and it's like, oh, roast beef. Would you like beef or chicken? <laughs> okay. Um, so she instilled that in us. That, and, and that's the one thing I suppose I've taken into my own family situation. Once they've had their dinner, I don't care. Once they've had their dinner and no broken bones, I don't care too much. What was your happiest childhood memory? Oh, God. See, I've, I said to you, I'm really bad at doing interviews. And this is where it starts to crash because I'm really bad at remembering stuff. Um, I was kind of a tomboy growing up and myself and my brother, he was five years older than me, but he was the next one up the chain. And we just had great fun together, sort of, you know, outside rough and tumble fun and um, crossing over fields and into other people's land and all that kind of thing, you know, just adventuring. So those kind of things are really happy. I feel like... I had a bit of an idyllic childhood, you know, cycling to school, um, the green fields and good parents, good grounding, really good grounding. So, yeah, it was all good. It was all good. No, like there's no standout thing, but I really appreciate that my childhood and the grounding that it gave me. Was there more freedom back then, do you think? Not really. I mean, we give our children a lot of freedom, but like my husband is from Leitrim, I'm from Leitrim, and he grew up like that and I grew up like that. And I don't want to restrict my children and say to them, you're not allowed to walk down the footpath or, you know, you have to have seven layers on you if you want to go for a walk or whatever it might be. So we try and just give them a bit of freedom and they're good, hardy outdoor children, all of them. So I don't think, like, I don't think we're mollycoddling them. Um, much the same. I'm hoping I'm giving them an upbringing like the one I got. That's what I'm hoping. You were given the last rights as a child. How tough was that for your parents? They're terrible. Like, I just, I, I can't imagine it, to be honest with you. Um, but I, I I just, I don't know. I mean, between that now and the COVID, I, I like, when's it going to end? So I got meningitis when I was 14, back in 1990. There was an outbreak of meningitis in Ireland at the time. So on the night that I went into hospital, they obviously spent the whole night with me and doctors trying to save my life. And then they were driving back to where they lived and they stopped. And as they would always do every morning, they bought the Irish Independent. And the headline was one word, meningitis across the top, you know, and then a big explanation about the killer um, disease that was in the country. So they did not need to see that. So yet yeah, then I uh, recovered for one day went downhill the next day and the priest was called. And my memory of that is oils being put on my forehead, my father and my mother kneeling beside the bed, being asked to say a prayer that the priest was saying. And there was a real sense of, you know, we're all saying goodbye now. So yeah, bizarre. Um, and then I was transferred to a hospital in Dublin and I was there for a couple of weeks and then I recovered when I was fine. And I was extremely lucky because most people have hearing loss, brain damage, limb loss from septicemia. I didn't have any of those things and I probably should have had. So I was very lucky in the treatment that I got and very lucky with the recovery that I made. And then all these years later, you you get another killer disease in COVID-19. What do you think? Which, which one was worse? Oh, meningitis by far. I mean, I probably knew more about what I was getting now when I got the COVID-19. But funny enough, I was talking to Professor Sam McConkie 
about it, about the fact that I had uh, bacterial meningitis. And he went, oh, that's why you've been able to deal with coronavirus then. You're, you know, every system in your body, you know, including psychologically, you would have a memory of dealing with that. You'll be fine. No worries about you. Your parents must be made of strong stuff to, to be able to go through that back then when you were a child. Yeah, even now, you know, my mother does not like talking about the meningitis incident, just not for her. It's too difficult, too difficult. It was a really tough time. Um, uh, like, and now I'm, I'm my own children. I can't imagine what it was like. Do you think you could go through that? Um, as a parent? Not easily. I mean, I find I've always been quite stoical, even with my work, you know, with news stories that I'm covering. I try to just stay professional but there are some things now that get me that used to get me so yesterday for example we covered the story on the radio of Tyke McKenna who's a boy from Monaghan born in Cavan General Hospital in 2017 and he was awarded 4.6 million because of the mistakes made at his birth admittance of liability and all of that and I found when I was covering the story that I had to distance myself from it so try not to think about it too much try not to look at the picture of poor Ty try not to think too much about his parents but you can't help it with stories like that like you just you just feel it you really do um so yeah I mean I don't ever want to think that I would have to go through something like that but I'd say you just find the strength and you try and get through it and you you hope and pray that everything will be fine but yeah don't like thinking about that stuff but there is a difficulty isn't there when you're a journalist where you you want to you want to come across human you know you want to humanize the the subject I suppose that you're on particularly if it's a difficult one to deal with while also trying to balance you know that level of professionalism but do you think it's important to to show your human side when you're covering stories like the ones you cover um yeah I do and I don't think I don't think I hide my human side maybe when I was working more exclusively in news like the television I'm doing now, television shows a bit more human interest to it, maybe than arguably than straight news reporting. So I think you have to be empathetic, you know, you have to be empathetic. And I can't help but not be really, you know, I, I just said there that I try not to get too involved in the story, but you can't help it. You just sometimes you can't help it. And you'd be weird if you weren't involved to a certain point where you couldn't feel something of what those people are going through. I think you know, there'd be something wrong with you if you didn't. When you look into the past, what do you miss the most? What do I miss the most? Um, I, I don't know whether I'm... Hmm. So when I look back to a time when I didn't have children, I constantly ask myself, what was I doing? Because I was always saying how busy I was, but actually I wasn't busy at all, not in the least because now I know what busy is now. <laughs> so I suppose I miss having a bit of time to myself or, you know, not having to schedule reading the papers on a Sunday morning. Like I have to now say, excuse me, I'm now going for an hour or two hours if I'm really lucky to read the paper. So I miss having that time to myself where I could go and do all of that. But, you know, that's part of the deal when, when you have children. So probably, yeah, I probably miss having my own time. And I've experienced that even more intensely since the coronavirus, the lockdown and all of that happened because no school, very little childcare available. I mean, I'm an essential worker, so I had a bit, but every minute that you're not working, you're looking after three small people. So you just, you just don't get a minute apart from when they're asleep. 
So that's that's kind of tough. So I would say in answer to your question, I miss having a bit of time to myself, selfishly. When was the last time you broke down in tears? Probably the night I found out I had coronavirus and it wasn't about me. Maybe it was a bit of shock uh, in relation to myself, but I think I kind of knew I was okay. It was more my parents. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. I thought I had killed both my parents, in truth, um, because they're no longer young, particularly my my dad, you know, would be considered to be in the, in the vulnerable category. And that was my big concern. So, yeah, probably then probably that night and what song moves you to tears god i'm not a great music person um hmm i can't i just can't come up with one instantly but the last one that really moved me was dreams by the cranberries performed by um a group of women who came together to raise money for women who are the victims of domestic violence we played it on the show on monday night and i found it hugely emotional because usually when our show ends the crew all pack up the stuff. I'm taking the mics off. The guests are gone. And we just started to play that song. We got a signal that we were clear. We weren't live anymore. And everybody just stood where they were or sat where they were and did not move until that song ended. And I just think it was the power of why they put the song together and also the beauty of the voices and, and the music. What about happiness? What makes you laugh? I always have great fun in work, despite what I've just said about, you know, being so serious and all the rest of it. I, I really, I still enjoy my work. I get great joy from it. I get great crack for my colleagues. I work with really smart, funny people and I enjoy their company immensely. I've always enjoyed the company of journalists because you always have to be on your toes and you would know that yourself. And we have great fun doing what we're doing. And the day I'm not having fun in work is the day I know I have to change my career and move on. But I get all my fun in work, really, at, at the moment. I mean, we've great fun with the children as well, because as they grow bigger, myself and Jerry knock great sport out of them. And, you know, the things the children say, <laughs> you could go on about that for ages, but it does. You do get great, great laughs out of that as they grow up. Lovely. And what about weaknesses? Do you have any? Oh, I get very wound up. You know, people say to me, oh, you're so calm and on the TV and you're so together. I think if only you knew, like I, I find it so hard to keep my stuff together in the, in the house, you know, and with the children and the washing and the food and somebody's not doing what I want them to do. And I'm like, oh, so I get very anxious and wound up about getting everything done at home. And that is a weakness. I would love to just not give a damn and not care that the washing wasn't done and that the food wasn't cooked and all of that. I would love that, but I, I'm not that person. So I put myself under a lot of pressure and then I wind, wind, wind myself up into an Egypt and stress everybody out around me. That's my biggest weakness. And do you get wound up at work or is it just home life? Really? No, not really. Um, I find maybe. that as well. It's a really strange thing. You sort of know what you're doing in work and, and you can, you're sort of in control. And then maybe when you move away from that, you know, there's certain things in your life that you don't yeah. have control over. I think maybe in work, I feel if I if I lose control or if I get too anxious about something, then it's all a cod and I'm the one who's supposed to be measured and calm here. And if I'm not, and I'm quite good in work as well at realizing that my job is to stay calm and to present whatever we're doing in a calm way that is understandable and communicate properly with the audience 
and it's everybody else's job to worry. Whereas at home, I feel it's probably my job to worry, if that makes sense. How's your mental health and what makes you anxious? Um, <laughs> the washing <laughs> and the food and all of that stuff. I mean, really, it's it's keeping up at home, you know, because my work is so intense that and I probably think that I I think I said this earlier, I feel that I should be the same mother that my my own mother was, even though her job was to look after us at home. And my job is that and my work life. So I probably put a bit too much pressure on myself in that regard. Now, I found in the last couple of months that I've been better at saying, do you know what? We will get a takeaway. Um, and you know the way the restaurants have been doing that food, like t- the food that you bring home when you prepare yourself. I've yeah. been really good at saying, we're doing that tonight and I'm not cooking. And it just takes the pressure off for a couple of hours. And the children are delighted with that. So I'm learning. I'm learning about that all the time. But I think across the board, I'm pretty happy and I'm OK. Yeah. You quit social media a few years ago. Why was that? Well, I didn't quit it. I stepped back a bit. I was very, when I was working for News Talk, I was, I was a really early adapter on Twitter and I was on all the time and I was chatting away. And then I just found it got a bit nasty and it got a bit personal. And apart from the personal stuff, which you can kind of deal with, there was stuff about work that was starting to bother me where I was doing my radio show on a Saturday at at the time and people would you include my handle in their comments about the show. And then one person might say that I was completely incompetent, incapable, incapable and brutal and I shouldn't have been on the radio. And that was the comment that I'd bring home with me and I would bring it home. And actually my husband, Jerry said to me, why are you bringing these people into the house? You're bringing them into the house with you when you read that stuff. And it just, it was a real wake up moment where I said, you know what? If I do a bad job, there's an editor in RTE or a producer whose job it is to tell me that I messed up. So why don't I just rely on them rather than relying on people who may or may not have an agenda? Now, I'm not discounting everybody on Twitter. I think some people have really valid opinions and I still read some of that stuff. But I just think you have to be careful because, you know, weighing yourself down with negative comments every day and you're going to get them in this job. You're, you're in the public eye. You are going to get that stuff and you can please everybody and not everybody's going to like you. And some people are going to hate you, but do you have to listen to it and do you have to bring it home with you? And I just formed an opinion that you don't, and you shouldn't really. And is the head better now when you're not on it as much? Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would never go after our television program. I would never look at the CB live Twitter handle or hashtag. I just wouldn't do it because it would be madness. I wouldn't sleep. It affects me. You know, it affects me. So I don't do it. And I'm much better off for making that decision. In fact, I have to say, you know, you know, you have your habit on your phone. So you'll do WhatsApp, your news sites, Facebook and Twitter. And I do that all the time. And sometimes after the program, I catch myself hovering over the Twitter button. I'm like, oh, no, don't do that. That's not Monday nights. We do not do that. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm conscious, I consciously stay away from it because it's not good for me. Yeah, I mean, I've tried to do the same as well. I mean, because mm, you know, what, what good does it do you? Like, what purpose does it serve? Yeah, yeah. What's the nastiest thing that someone has written about you on Twitter <sighs> that you've read? Um, you know, the day I made the decision to quit Twitter wasn't a work-related comment. It was when myself and my husband got engaged and a comment was made, which I'm not going to repeat because I 
wouldn't do the favour to the person who said it about our relationship and about what might happen. And I just thought, you know, I have a baby now and I don't want him to ever see this kind of stuff. And this person has absolutely no right to make uh, this comment and to put it out publicly into the world. So that was the day when I just decided not to do it and to come off. And it was weird for a while because I kind of missed it. And sometimes you see conversations happening on Twitter because I do lurk a little bit. Um, You see conversations happening. I think, oh, I'd love to say this or I know that person or I like that person or whatever. And I do miss it sometimes, but I'm really glad I'm not there. I'm really glad I'm not there. Yeah, I'm very close to doing the same. I, I wouldn't miss it, I don't think. You see, you can still be there anonymously. And so many people are. I mean, if you look at the stats, the number of members of Twitter and the number of active members, there's a huge disparity. So you can still lurk and it's a really useful news tool, of course. Yeah. So you can do all of that, but you don't have to put yourself out there for abuse because in this job and in your job, that's what you get. Yeah, no, I think it's all changing because I was very early on Twitter as well. I think I joined in 2008. Back, yeah. back when it sort of began it was very exciting there was a real thrill and you know it uh it has all the benefits for for journalists but also very much now it, you can see the the downside of having that and being connected yeah. to 24 7. I think in the beginning people were really nice on Twitter as well and that has changed yeah. I, I'm not sure why but it's become quite vitriolic yeah uh, well are you I happy think- with yourself do you feel content in your in your own skin? Uh, pretty much, yeah, pretty much. I mean, wh- when are we ever happy with ourselves? I mean, there's always you always make mistakes. I'm watching the Hillary Clinton documentary on Sky at the moment. Have you seen it? It's a no, documentary it, series. Is it good? I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it. It's really good. It's really good. It gets it, the the access is phenomenal and all of that. But she says a number of times. I made loads of mistakes and you look back on the clips of her when Bill was president and how she and also how she moved from being you know quite the feminist to being married to Bill Clinton you know like it's just it's extraordinary but she says a number of times we all make so many mistakes all of the time and she freely admits it and I think that's probably a good way to be and to live like I'm happy enough uh, could I be happier probably is a lot of uh things that I might feel I could be happier about are they down to me and how I live my life probably but I'm doing okay you know I'm 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 happy enough with how I'm my career I'm I'm delighted with my career my family life is busy but it's really good um since I got the virus I'm taking a bit better care of myself and I'm taking a bit of time out every day to do a bit of exercise and I feel I've ticked that box and you know, as long as I'm healthy and I've got a bit of time to read and relax and enjoy my family, I'm generally okay. I'm low maintenance enough. And you are flying high on RTE television and radio and it's a joy to watch and you inspire the rest of us. But who inspired you? Uh, I grew up watching Today Tonight. Do you remember Today, Today Tonight? Did you have that? It was a precursor to prime time. Can I tell you something that you might find strange i live along the border in fermanagh and i have only just been able to get rte in the last number of years well i couldn't get i 
<laughs> I grew up in Leash and we only had RT1 and RT2 for my entire life growing up. <laughs> and occasionally so you know we get all. to see catchphrase, you know, on a like a really snowy channel, which would invade our TV set. So I didn't have the channels. You didn't have our channels. So there you go. Yeah. So today, tonight was the precursor to primetime. If I wanted to stay up past the nine o'clock news, I'd have to like be really, really, really quiet and snuggle up next to my father and pretend I wasn't there. And then today, tonight would come on. And this very intimidating man called Brian Farrell was the presenter. So I grew up watching him and thinking, oh, he knows everything and he's so amazing. And he's, you know, he would chair the political debates and all of this. And he was a very learned man. Then I went to UCD to college and I studied politics. And my first lecture, you had to walk into this lecture hall with 500 people. I came from a school of 300. So this was just terrifying for me. And I was a few minutes late and the lecturer was Brian Farrell. And he saw me looking for a seat and he went, come down here to the front, young lady, and sit on the steps. I'm going to die. I was 17. Like I was so, such a greenhorn. Um, So I sat through that lecture frozen in terror that he might speak to me again. He didn't, of course, but he was probably one of my heroes. But in a sort of, I mean, it was what I do now and what he did. It's completely different. But I grew up sort of idolizing him and I grew up idolizing Gay Byrne who I got to know um, luckily enough. And And you used to pretend that he was your uncle. Is that right? Yeah, pretend. Yeah. Once, just once. Uh, And I didn't actually, I was about to, somebody asked me, was I related to him? And I was about to pretend and I didn't, but he was really good to me. He was really kind to me and much missed. And like, like I read his, his biography when I was 12, you know, I was really in awe of him, really in awe of him. Like, my God, they want him to work in America. I still, like, I still find that amazing. Can you imagine, you know, a broadcaster being taken over there and being told here, I know. Have your own show. Like it's extraordinary. Just um, and then and then not to do it. Yeah, incredible. And as well as the you know the light stuff, you you obviously have been very much focused on on more serious stories, of course. And one of them was the Oma Bomb. And I know you you interviewed Michael Gallagher, and I interviewed mm. Eamon Holmes um a few weeks ago. He was on the podcast, and he talked about the the huge impact that covering the Oma story had on him. But what impact did, did meeting and interviewing and spending time with Michael Galler have on you? Uh, it was a really strange one, actually, because we were talking earlier on about being stoical and not letting things affect you. And that one really crept up on me that night because we were we were covering a lot of Brexit um, related stories and the fallout of a hard Brexit should have come to pass. And, you know, we had learned over time that if a hard Brexit were to happen, there was a real risk of violence returning to the island. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the next few months. It's just one of those unknowns. But anyway, that's where our focus was. And we were talking to victims of violence in Northern Ireland. And Michael was one of the people we invited in. And myself and my editor decided that we would play some of the news footage from OMA. So it was just in that moment, and as I say, I didn't expect it. It was on the big screen up to my right, and Michael was sitting to my left, and the two of us were looking at it. And, you know, broken bodies were being carried from shops in that footage. And I thought, this could be Michael's son. We could be watching Michael's son. And I just turned to him, and you know he has that lovely soft face, just a warm gentle heart a gentle soul and it just broke me I just looked at him and I just said I'm so sorry for putting you through that 
And then my voice caught and I couldn't speak. And Michael, to his credit, then started to talk. He knew that I was in trouble. Um, and I just it just got me. I just thought, how can this man be standing up? You know, and I meet people like that all the time where I think, how are you standing up? Um, and, and to be able to stand up and campaign, it's just like, I don't know. I don't think I would have that strength. And was that sort of what it was like for you then, sort of observing the, the, and watching what was going on in the North during the Troubles? Was it difficult, you know, living in the South and, and seeing what was going on in the North during the, the Troubles? I have to admit, we felt so far removed from what was happening in Northern Ireland. We lived in Leash. We knew nothing about it apart from what we saw in the news. It was as alien to us as Israel almost, you know? Like we, I spent some of my summers in Leitrim with my cousins and they had stories about the border fox being on the run through their village and all of this. And I was sitting there with my mouth open. And I remember going up one summer and saying, oh, can we go to Enniskillen? They went, no, 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 it's being rebuilt. This was after the, the Ennis, Enniskillen bombs. So an awareness through news stories, but almost like any other news that we were consuming at the time, it just didn't affect our lives. And I think that's the problem for a lot of people in the Republic. Not everybody, because I know that some people will get very cross if I say that. But for me growing up, it was very far removed from my existence, my day-to-day existence. So what motivates you, Claire? Is it money, praise, awards, recognition, ambition? No, no. I like doing a good job. I really like doing a good job. I hate coming off and thinking, I should have done it this way. I should have started here and ended here. I kick myself and I go home happy when I know I've done a good job. You know, when I have done justice to the people who have come in, or I have given the audience a good experience, which to me is communicating what I feel they should know about a, a subject. So um, that's really my my reward. I, I certainly don't do it for awards. I don't I don't buy into that at all. I'm not I'm not interested in awards. Don't really get many of them anyway, to be honest with you. But that's not my and recognition. Don't care. I don't care about any of that stuff. I just want to do a good job. A lot of chat at the moment about sexism in television and in, in entertainment have you any experience of of sexism and irish broadcasting is it a problem in, in in irish tv i don't think so anymore i think that media is probably one of the areas that changed quite quickly and certainly with rt there's always been a consciousness and awareness about it and i think if you look at rt we had female presenters who were there you know, from the start of their careers to the very end of their careers to retirement. And, you know, there was no such thing as kicking people off and and all that sort of stuff in the main. um, I do think, and I'm going back to Hillary Clinton again, you know, she talks about in 1968 being in college in Yale and there were no female professors. There were no female doctors. There were 27 women in the whole of Yale. And the men were saying to them, if you get into this college, if you pass this exam, you're going to take my place and what good is it to you? So when you look at feminism and the fight, they're the women who fought the fight. Like I'm reaping the rewards of that and the benefits of that. But my fight is nowhere near what those women went through. My fight, and I think the fight for most women, certainly in Ireland, is about childcare and it's about supports. If you are trying to bring up a family, there's basically nothing there for you you just have to manage it on your own you have to hope that your income is good enough to be able to afford childcare. otherwise 
you're in real trouble. And a lot of my friends who have children around here where, where I live, it's the women who work part time or it's the women who give up work because we are the primary caregivers still and the supports are not there. So that's, I think, where the battleground is uh, in my circle, if you like. And you've spoken out before as well about the Me Too movement. You know, you've made some comments in the past about that. Do you have any personal experience of that? Bits and bobs along the way. But, you know, I've always operated like a person in the world and I've always been quite good at, you know, I haven't operated as, oh, here, I'm a woman working in it. I've just operated as a person. So you accept that I'm able to do the job or I'm not able to do the job. And I believe that I can do the job. So 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 let's all move on from that. I have had comments. I have had things said to me by ignorant people, but I'm quite good at dealing with them. You know, I can't remember a moment where I've kicked myself because I haven't pushed back. I'm quite good at pushing back. And what kind of comments were made? You know, I mean, I can't even remember off off the top of my head. But you know, particularly when when you're younger, when you're young, a young woman working in in media, you'll have things said to you. Um, by older men about how you look or whatever it might be. Are these work colleagues colleagues or members of the public? No, more members of the public, more members of the public, I think. Like, I think, now maybe I'm wrong, but I think I'm a bit scary. (laughs) (laughs) And I think as as I've become older, that people don't take the risk of saying those things to me because I am ready to fight back. I am ready to fight back. I really am. But that's the right attitude, Um, isn't it? Yeah, you know, like it's bullshit. Sorry, <laughs> it's bullshit. It really annoys me that if men still think that they, they can get away with that stuff, and I'm ready for them. <laughs> and is that type, the type of thing you're going to teach your children? You have to stand up for yourself. If, if... Oh, all of the time, all of the time. You know, um, girls can do anything. Girls can do any job. Um, your body is your business, all of those things. And they're so small, like I sometimes feel mad saying it to them, but I, I just hammer it home to them. And actually, that's the way I was brought up as well. Like there were five girls in my house and one boy and the girls could do exactly what he could do and more, you know. Um, so that's bred into me as well. And that's what I will instill in my children and in particular my son. So the girls will know that they can do anything, but I want him to know that he can't do anything, everything, you know, and that he has to have respect for people. So, yeah, that's really important to me in, in terms of raising them. Hugely important. Looking at your career, what do you want to do next? What is the big plan for the next few years? I don't know. Like, I, I've been asked that a lot over the years and I never have a plan. And I think that's the best plan. So my strategy has always been do the job that you're doing now to the best of your ability and then good things will happen. And that's worked for me. So that's my plan. So there's nothing that I would say I really want to do X, Y and Z because you're setting yourself up for a fall. You know, I mean, if you know what? My one career regret is I wish when I was younger that I had gone to America. That's what I wish. To work? I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, not for to live my life there forever, but I would like to have experienced the media in America before it went crazy. You know, I think it's crazy now. I don't think I'd want to work there now. But 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I probably would have liked to give it a shot. Um, 
mightn't have gotten anywhere. I mightn't have gotten a job, but I would like to have tried and I didn't. So maybe that's the one regret I have. Well, I also adore Ryan Tuberty. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. But when the time comes that he decides, you know what, I don't want to do the Late Late anymore. Would you like to see yourself there? Would you do the Late Late Show? Um, someone told me one time, never say you don't want to do the Late Late Show. That's a bad career move. It's, I don't know, like I love news and current affairs. I love politics. Um, and there are some things that Ryan does on the Late Late Show that he's brilliant at, like the toy show, for example, that I don't think I would be good at. And I also think it's a bit rude to talk about somebody else's job, you know, and talk about wanting that job. So I don't know. I can't, I wouldn't rule it out. But at the same time, I'm not going to cry if it never happens. And I think Ryan is very, very good at it. And he'll be there for a long time. We're around the same age. You know, I'm not going to die unhappy if I don't ever do the Late Late Show. Put it like that. But if it came my way, I'm not going to say no because I'm not an idiot. Yeah. I, at some point in the future, not, and, and, and I, I agree with you, it's not right to talk about it when, when Ryan's doing it now. But at some point in the future, would you like to see a female doing it? I know one of your your heroes, Marianne Finucane, hosted it at one stage for, 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 for a very short period. But would you like to see a female do it full time? Well, Miriam did it for, Miriam McCallaghan did it for two nights when Ryan had the virus, same course, as myself. Of course. Um, so that was great. Yeah, I mean, I like to see women doing jobs if they're the best person for the job. That's when I, I mean, I love to see brilliant women doing well. I would hate to see mediocre women doing well because people feel that women should be in particular jobs. So meritocracy all the way. What's the status then with the Sean O'Rourke show? I did read your name as one of the names speculated as as somebody who might um, fill that position, is it? Yeah, my name has been linked to that job. <laughs> um, and it's always nice to have your name linked to a job, which Sean O'Rourke did and Pat Kenny did. But look, I don't know. I, I like, I'm not a decision maker in RTE, so I don't know what way that's going to go. Uh, I'm tipping away. I'm going to take a break after my... CB Live run ends. I cannot wait. I haven't had a break since Christmas. So that's where my focus is at the moment. But it is a real privilege and a real honour to be linked to a job like that. But I don't know because I'm not the boss. And would you like to do it? Um, I probably would. I probably would. It would change my life a lot. You know, um, I have a grand life at the moment. I can put a lot of energy into my TV programme because I have the time to do that. That job is two hours a day, five days a week. So it would be tough. And I don't know what it would mean for my TV show. So there'd be a lot of things to consider. And also my children are very small. Well, so back to the women thing again. They're always like, my children are small. So look, I would like to do it. I would like to do it. But if I don't get to do it, I'm grand. You know, yeah. and I'm happy. Back to your children. And final question. When you tuck your children in at night, what do you think when you look at them? I hope I did a good job today. <laughs> I hope I did a good job today. Because, you know, I don't know, like, you, you do your best, but you feel, you just wonder sometimes, what, what is the legacy that I'm leaving with them? You know, what what are they going to grow up with um, that will come from me and how I dealt with them? So I hope when I took them in at night that they're happy, that I have been the best parent that I can be, and that if I haven't, I'll be better tomorrow. Claire Burns, thank you so much. 
It was a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure. <laughs>